Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have an awesome show for you today. He's been requested by many of you. Our guest has a background in academia, econ, fund management. He's worked as an economist set up value at risk systems for trading desk at KeyCorp. He has spent time managing money, starting his own funds, did a PhD, written a couple books you may have read, Finding Alpha and the Missing Risk Premium, and then a whole slew of white papers. Welcome to the show, Eric Falkenstein. Well, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're tuning in from Minnesota, which I've never, it's like one of the five states I've never been to. It's on, it's on my to-do list. Are you an ice fisherman yet? No, but the fun thing is um, my old firm, when, when the guys would come out from New York, we'd take them ice fishing in the uh, winter and then uh, they would never want to come back because they thought like that's all we did. But we thought, you know, if you're going to come out to Minnesota, you should do a Minnesota thing. You know, we're not going to take you to uh, <laughs> a Buffalo Wild Wings. You can do that there. My brother is a big ice fisherman and I say, Wayne, I'll do it with you once every five years just to have a little brotherly quality time. But they don't do it quite the way that people in Minnesota do it. He's in Colorado. I mean, it's like a tent and a heater and that's about it. The true pros have those like cabins with record player and whiskey and music. I, that That's the way I want to do it. So anyway, but being in the cold and staring at a hole is not not my favorite. So uh, it's really an excuse to get away from your wife and drink beer. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I like that part. Um, by the way, I got to give you a great compliment. You're you're one of the last holdouts of the bloggers out there that still use the old school Blogspot platform. I think you still do, right? The uh, I think it's it's Professor Damodaran from NYU. And there's like th- three or four others. I love it. Please don't ever change. It's my I I, I have a very soft spot. We started out on that many years ago. So. Um, I love it. Well, I don't do it much anymore. I'm not a big blogger anymore. I just, uh, the value isn't there for me now. Um, so I just, uh, it shifted. See, now it's on podcast. So you'll, you'll get, you'll get lots of crazy responses that you would have used to get on the blog, on the podcast. All right, let's, let's start chatting. So let's, let's go back to the origin stories. I want to, I want to hear a little bit about some of your early beginnings. You covered a lot of ground and kind of academia. What, what, why don't we walk back there? Talk to me a little bit about your path of how you got into, this sort of econ beginnings and the origins of uh, what we're going to talk about the rest of this talk today. Well, you know, I, I went to Wash U as an undergrad and uh, I got into econ because I was a TA for Hyman Minsky. And, uh, you know, he was like my mentor as an undergrad and uh, made me want to get a PhD. And so I thought he was really cool because he was, he was really down to earth and he was really uh, iconoclastic in the sense that he didn't get along with the, the Keynesians, and he didn't get along with the monetarists, and so I, I just found his attitude really fun. And uh, I still disagree with him on like a lot of things, but he did tell me one thing I'll never forget, which is when I was like 20, he said, you know, just don't think you're going to know everything until you're at least 30. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, what an idiot. You know, I, I almost know everything now. And uh, 
I didn't realize that he could have probably added 10 years to that, but he was really good. And, and so then um, I took that. I wanted to be a macroeconomist because of predict business cycles. And, you know, he had his own little boom bust theory. And, but as much as he's like popular now, his, his basic idea that economies are endogenously unstable, I agree that's true. But other than that, you really, you know, he had this idea that basically you just lever more and more during the cycle. And it's kind of true, but there aren't any aggregates of that. So, and I found that that was true in everything in macro. Every, every, everything you tried didn't really work. So I, I kind of jumped ship in grad school at Northwestern and, and got into um, uh, finance because at least, you know, I was always into stock markets. When I first got out of school in 87, my first trade, because I had like $5,000 because my my grandma died. And so I got $5,000. And so my first trade, I actually bought a put on the SP 500 on October 16th, 87. And so, so like I hit a home run, like I made like $42,000 in two days. That that's the, that's gotta be the, the most amazing origin story for anyone's first trade. I yeah, mean, that was I, my first, so, so I thought that was really cool, but also that's probably like the worst possible first trade that could it, ever it happen was, to yeah, someone yeah, in their twenties. Yeah. Now, now you're like, I'm, I'm George Soros. I'm going to soon be worth $500 million. Cause yeah, if, if, if you love somebody and they go to Vegas, uh, you want them to lose the first day. Uh, it's definitely true. Yeah. Cause then, you know, I realized after that over the next year, I, I said, Oh, I'll just do this full time. But you know, the spread and the taxes and it killed me. But anyway, you know, I, I just really hooked on like the markets and trying to figure that out. And so yeah, so I went to grad school and, and I tried the macro stuff. I I found none of none of those guys know what they're doing. Even today, they they're still arguing about the same stuff. They can't predict business cycles and they can't predict long term growth. That is like nobody predicted, you know, that you know what is it? The five Asian tigers were going to take off in the early '80s. Um, nobody predicted West Germany would take off after World War II and. And nobody knows why Haiti is poor and Iceland is, is rich. Economists disagree on that. So it's kind of pointless. So so anyway, finances I thought was fun. And, but then I got into that. And then I one of the first things I found was that, uh, you know, volatility didn't have a premium. And so I wrote my dissertation on that and said, hey, this is high vol stocks actually have a low and average return. And uh, yeah, that was my dissertation. What was the inspiration for that? As you were just kind of kicking around, reading about finance, was it was there ever kind of a, you were just playing around the numbers? Because you were really early to this. So this is probably early, mid-90s at this point. Not a lot of people talking about this. What kind of led you down that path? And was it something where you kind of scratch your head and say, man, I'm really onto something. This is really cool. Or you're like, am I just an idiot? and the rest of the world understands this and I don't? Or like, what, what was the general aha sort of process? Well, I've always just had like, a, I don't know, I've been disagreeable in the sense of I always think, like Minsky, you know, everyone else is wrong. And so, you know, that, that's kind of a personality disposition. But, you know, I, I had the, the standard SAS access to the crisp tapes, which all the PhD programs have, right? So you, we had all the access to all the... And so one of the first things you can do in SAS is to do these like, you know, decile sorts and stuff. And so, you know, I just, I calculated volatility, all these metrics, and I rank them from low to high and look at the monthly returns of the portfolios. I remember I found the momentum thing was one of the first things I found. And I was doing this in like 92. And, and around that same time, Jagadish and Titman published the momentum paper, the first momentum paper. And I remember I found it and like, you know, a month later, you know, it was published, which means 
Jagdish and Tipman probably figured it out two years earlier. But anyway, I thought it was cool that I, I found something before anyone told me about it. So I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing things. Um, and, then, uh, and then I found this volatility thing. You know, I calculate volatility. The trick was you got to get rid of the small stocks because the little small stocks have really high volatility. And you get this weird bias to returns when you look at small stocks because they have crazy bid-ass spreads and such. You know, the, the whole thing that caused, uh, you know, the size effect initially was thought to be around 15% annually. And it was all just because of mismeasurement issues with the um, bid-ask on the small small stuff. So, yes, yeah, so I, I got rid of the small cap stocks. If you got, if you got rid of, like, uh, the low-price stocks, really, the returns for highest of all were, were lower than average. And I knew that didn't make any sense. And so, but my, you know, my, it was so, it was so new then it was actually too new. You know, it's sort of like, you know, Apple and the Newton, you know, it's good to be, come up with new ideas, but you don't want to have them be too new. If I, if I would have done this, uh, you know, in the late nineties after Freakonomics and behavioral finance got hot, it would have been more, I don't know, it would have been accepted better, but because it was, uh, I didn't, I didn't have a rational explanation for it. And, you know, Northwestern's kind of like Chicago. Those guys are all like, well, you have to have a theory. You can't just find something because that's just, you know, that's just data dredging and you're just finding meaningless noise. That's the way things are done now. But back then it was, no, you, you have a theory and, you, you know, if you just find something but there's not a rational explanation, then you're fooling yourself. It's not real. So, so I wrote up this story about how, Mutual funds are attracted to sexy stocks, and I got that published in the Journal of Finance. But uh, the asset pricing one, you know, was rejected because it just didn't make any sense. Um, and like I said, that was just too too early. Like five years later, they would have said, "Fine, if if you found something, we'll publish it." But that didn't fly then. It's funny because I was smiling as I read through a lot of your comments on the publication process and how, how, how kind of humorous that was. Cause you know, when, when we f- published our first academic white paper, being someone that had never been through this, it was such a odd process to me. I mean, it was, it was, it had all the earmarks of something you wouldn't expect out of a theoretical academic process where people totally came to the table with their preconceived notions, where there's definitely an element of, clubbiness to it and all these other things that, and it's changed a lot in the ensuing couple of decades, but what, what was the process of trying to get this published? The idea, you know, it, it was it just kind of universally shut down? Were people dismissive? They were all just very dismissive, you know, like one guy was trying, said, you know, I'm trying to tell him that the world is flat or something because they said, you know, it can't be. And um, it, it was just incredulity. I mean, there was nobody high profile, you need, you need some big guy to like say, oh yeah, that's a good idea because otherwise the people okaying your paper are going to feel stupid. So, and I had no big guy backing me. You know, my dissertation committee was actually, most of those guys were like game theorists. I had one finance guy, but he was a junior faculty guy. So, um, so that's why, you know, I I could get my one paper done on on mutual funds because it was kind of, it wasn't that radical, but the volatility finding was just too radical at that time. You know, looking back, we, we see other people found it too, but they would just kind of mention it parenthetically, like Haugen, you know, had some, some papers finding it and, and other people, but they just mentioned it as an aside. I was emphasizing it and they're like, well, no, it, this can't be true. And so, so I was a 
perfectly fine with that because I thought, oh, gr- great, I'll just become a, I'll set this up as a fund. And so I got a job as, a, as an economist, but I was busy trying to like create my own fund. And that's, you know, the first thing I did. And I tried to create this low vol fund in this, but, you know, and I, and I created the C Corp with just with my family money. So, you know, I put like a couple hundred grand in there and then I would go to New York, you know, and try to sell it to some people. But the problem was it was just so simple. You know, it wasn't sexy because I just said, hey, low vol has, you get another like 100 basis points, 200 basis points for you know, low vol over the S&P and you get, you know, two thirds of risk. And, and that didn't work for two reasons. One is they, they would just say, well, this can't be true because it was true. Everyone was doing it. And then another thing they would say is, well, well, basically, I would explain it so well. They're just figuring, well, you know, that's nice. But now that you've told me kind of like the whole thing, I wouldn't want to hire you to do it. Right. Because there's no. So, yeah, it was just a massive failure on, on my marketing end. And, uh, you know, and then by by the early 2000s, you had people like Pim Van Vliet and uh, um, Unigestion uh, started funds around like 2004, you know, and they were just in the right place at the right time. You know, Pim just got lucky and had a good manager that allowed him to to do his thing. And, uh, and then they took off and became history. So I just, I missed it by, by a big amount. But, but I mean, I, I did, I, I tried to set up another fund later because I'd been in, in hedge funds by then in 2006. But unfortunately, my, my old boss sued me for I don't know, violating a confidentiality agreement. And then, you know, after I got out of that, no one would touch me because it was kind of vague and no one wanted to um, deal with the risk. So, so my second trial to start a fund, when it really started to take off, uh, that, that got whacked too. But, but you know, then I, I applied it later. You know, I, I, I was doing low vol stuff at my last hedge fund and it worked fine. And But, but that fund, you know, outside of me, it was like a $5 billion when I got there and they it went down for just for other reasons. I was I was one of many PMs there, and they no longer exist. Talk, talk to me a little bit about some kind of what you learned about the practical implementation. So you were you kind of spent some time managing the funds. Did the results play out sort of as you had expected to? And was there any sort of conceptual takeaways for running the strategy in the real world, or is it pretty much what you what you'd expect? Well, you know, looking back, I think. The essence of it, its value is, is really straightforward. It's just low vol, and, and it's a flat maximum. It doesn't matter if you use daily vol the last six months or two years. or That doesn't really matter that much. And it works almost in every market, So, or I think it does work in every market. And But adding layers onto it, I found, was always kind of like a red herring. It was kind of essential, because if you just told someone you're doing low vol and trying to ARB stuff that way, no, no one would like give you money to do that. So you had to add another factor, even if it didn't work. <laughs> and so, but that was all sort of a compromise you had to make in order to get someone to do it because no one wants to do just low vol. So, you know, everyone has AQR has got their low vol fund and it's got, you know, they, what do they call it? Defensive. And then, you know, PIMS at, at Robico, they call theirs conservative. And, you know, he's got extra factors and you know, but the extra factors are just tricky. I'm not really a big fan of any of the other factors. I'm sure you're aware that like value is getting beaten up and, you know, it's a tricky one. You know, how do you measure value? And I don't have a lot of expertise in those and I don't have a lot of confidence in them. But to the extent that the low vol thing works, I think it's just a really captured very well by the SPLV ETF. And so, yeah, there are ways to, to, to make it better by doing it internationally, I think, and, and diversifying. But other than that, 
I want to. You, you mentioned a couple of things. I want to. I want to touch on real quick. And and the first is, you know, you kind of came up with this research before many people did and understood it. As you have seen in the ensuing couple decades, a couple of things. One, what, what do you see as the main value proposition? So, is it behavioral? Is it that do you think it's smoother returns, potentially better returns, but also, you know, what? Why? Why do you think it really persists? I mean, and this may tie into your first academic paper on people being attracted to lottery stocks. But what have you learned in the ensuing two decades that kind of tells the story in a way that makes sense to you as to why why would this continue to persist and and why do people continue to do dumb things? I guess the key is that, you know, the, the Cap M, when they derived it, they, everyone just thought it worked because it made sense. And when they first tested it, the real first test was when uh, those guys at Chicago you know, created the first crisp tape and they found out that, uh, you know, equities had like a 7% premium over bonds. And so they're like, hey, this this was, you know, 10 years or so after the Cap M was developed or no, right around the same time the Cap M was developed. And so they're like, oh, the explanation is, you know, higher beta stocks, you know, higher risk stuff gets this risk premium, but it doesn't generalize to anything else. I mean, we, we know that the equities return more than bonds. And that's a good example of a risk premium, but it's like the only one. I mean, you have you have that, and then you have the return of triple B bonds over treasuries and or over triple A, but you don't have a lot of other places. I mean, if you look in sports gambling and within stocks, it, it doesn't show up. And and my my big thing is people are more relatively oriented than absolutely oriented. So if if risk is what everyone else is doing then, you know, if you invest in stocks, the, the spiders are at low risk. So tracking error is your risk. Your risk is not your absolute return. It's your return relative to what everyone else is looking at. And that makes just a lot more sense from an evolutionary standard standpoint. It, 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 and it just seems to show up again and again that people are more relatively oriented. And if people are relatively oriented, then, then you know, a high beta stock has risk, but so does a low beta stock. So, you know, there's no risk premium in that dimension. And then the high beta stuff has all this extra sexiness that people like. I mean, people are overconfident. That causes you to apply your your great alpha to the, you know, the high flying stocks, not the boring ones. People, information costs. Uh, high flying stocks are written about all the time. They're generating news. Um, there's, you know, alpha discovery in the sense of, you know, if you're, if you're going to get into the game, you, you don't want to like pick Coke versus Pepsi. You want to pick, uh, you know, Facebook versus Apple or something, something that's going to move around a lot. And so, you know, and, and then generally equity investors tend to be bullish because you wouldn't invest in equities unless you were bullish and conditional upon the stock market going up. Well, then you want to be in high, high risk stocks. So there's a bunch of sexy reasons why people are glom on to the high beta stocks and there's no premium for it. So it pushes those down and, and the security market line is flat otherwise, I think. And that gives the low vol stocks not so much a premium, but because high vol stocks are part of the index, that means that the low vol stocks kind of just tend to outperform by a couple percent a year. So, so now we have kind of the low vol phenomena is, is, seems to be fairly well accepted in the community. You know, there, there's now a debate raging would love to a raging is probably the wrong word you can't really have a raging quant finance debate but if it was that's it where where people have been talking about 
various factors like low low vol investing, which historically works great. But the capacity to say that there's times when this may work better, whether through regimes or research affiliates talks a lot about this, where they say there's times based on valuation of the underlying stocks, meaning a factor can go in and out of favor, such as the late 90s, value is out of favor. Certainly in this period, value has been getting pummeled by the pain train for this this almost entire cycle. What, what's your thoughts in general on you know that concept of looking at factors through the lens of either your economist hat of different regimes or also of potential valuations where they're either in favor or out of favor? And do you think it's possible to to ever time those. I tried that a lot because, you know, when I was applying this at various funds, you know, a lot of my bosses would say, well, why don't you look at the price to book of your strategy now and compare it to earlier times? And, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because if if previously my, you know, the strategy of going long low of all stocks had a relative value metric that made it different currently, it would make you wary. But historically, I didn't find it really worked. It didn't help me time the cycle. There's one exception, of course, which is the internet boom. You know, there, obviously, all the metrics kind of like highlighted that, uh, you know, the internet stocks were overdone and, and uh, relative to the boring stocks. But other than that period, that little, you know, period where it went way up and way down, those trying to find those valuation metrics to time a factor, be it, uh, you know, value or whatever factor, size or momentum or whatever the cool factors are now. It just, I haven't found them to work at a sample where you kind of like handcuff yourself and come up with a rule where without looking forward, you, you know, you know, you you determine whether it's high or low. Yeah. I never found any of those to work. um, Unfortunately, you know, in the same sense of like, you look at Cape, right? You you can look at the whole sample, like look at uh, what do you have that Who's that guy? Um, that guy at Yale. He's got that Schiller. Schiller. So, yeah. So he's got his like Excel sheet, right? And you can look at the PE over time, and you can just go through that Excel sheet and say, okay, what if I took, you know, if I had some dynamic rule to get in or out of the market based on the PE, and uh, if you confine that rule looking backward, it's it's hard to create something that adds value to just being long. I don't know. Have you tried that exercise? I know you like to play with it. Oh, yeah. We, we've spent a lot of time with the CAPE ratio. And, and, and yes, I agree. I mean, look, market timing is tough in general. I mean, we you'll smile at this. When, when we wrote our very first white paper, the original title of it was A Simple Approach to Market Timing. And my God, you should have seen the reactions to that. People, every single person I sent it to just pulled out their hair. They wouldn't read it. And we were trying to get it published. And, and then we changed the title to a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation. And it, it was literally night and day, Eric. You have no idea how people responded to it as if like, so, you know, in our world of investing in finance, like you mentioned, so much of it is just kind of how you how you frame the argument. So instead of calling it low vol, you call it conservative or whatever it may be. <laughs> and so I've, so mar- market timing, yes, I, I think there's, Plenty of metrics that I think help, but 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 in almost always they don't help the way that people think they help. Most people, individual as well as a lot of institutions out there, you know, when they think of market timing, they're looking for a magical elixir that's going to tell you when to sell at a market top and buy at a market bottom. But but in reality, whether using trend or whether using valuation, they tend to be fairly blunt tools. 
and likely what is the net effect? Yeah, they'll probably reduce your worst case drawdown, but those drawdowns don't happen that much. You know, it's it's a kind of once in a generation sort of thing. But I, we we have found value, but it's not, you know, it's it's not the holy grail. But you know, but it's funny too because we say, well, wow, Schiller's goes all the way back to 1880, and then there's global financial data just put an update for Cape ratio back to like 1810 or something. And, you know, what did the world look like back then? Well, certainly not what it does today. So it's a little bit of it's just trying to, in my mind, a lot of those rules come down to common sense, you know. And so you can apply Cape ratio globally to uh, countries like all the countries in the world, but it gives you more than anything an understanding of history. So saying, hey, did it make sense to buy Japan at a Cape ratio of almost 100 in the 80s and you know those things then don't pass the smell test so it's simply using value or low vol or some of these factors i think i think it helps but certainly the market cap weighted indexes are a a high hurdle anyway so yeah we we could spend four more hours talking about cape ratio that that tends to always uh, you know like my my old fund actually they they kind of like got uh, they got really pushed up into the upper tier because a, a guy there I work with for uh, Steve Kuhn, he, he made a great timing call on uh, treasuries in like 2010 and said, you know, that these treasuries or these mortgages actually are going to, going to rebound. And, and uh, he was right. And you get one of those big timing calls, a big thing like that, right. And you make a lot of money for people and you get a lot of benefits, but you know, there's so, they're so sui generis. I mean, they're so, and they're so infrequent. It really, it really doesn't say much about your alpha in general. It just means, you know, if, if you were right about mortgages coming back in 2010, when people thought they were going to do a double dip, great. But, you know, as, as, who was that, that famous guy? Was it Paulson or something? You know, he, he called that whole thing right. And then, and then I think, you know, he, he kept thinking the treasuries were going to crash for the next eight years and was wrong. And so, yeah, those timing calls, they can make you a lot of money, but I think it's irrational to like extrapolate alpha from those. We, we've had a couple of good guests on the podcast that, that have framed it. You know, so many investors on the timing side want to think in, t- in binary terms where, hey, you know, stocks are expensive or they're in a downtrend. I got to be in or out. And the way we often tell people to think about it and psychologically and behaviorally, that's probably a lot easier to handle is you know, somewhere in between where you're either calibrating your portfolio or the fancy technical term we call going halvesies, where, you know, you're not necessarily going all in or out on some of these ideas, but rather you're tilting away from, that's that's the way we think about it. It's really hard for people to think in binary terms, although almost everyone wants to, because <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. they secretly want to gamble. The one timing call I would call now is, uh, you know, I, I do think it's a bad time to be like long bonds, you know, I mean, interest rates have gone back up a lot in the last year, but they're still historically pretty low. It's it's funny, if you, if you look at bonds, and we're talking about sovereigns, and you look at them globally, the US has now inched its way, despite not being that high versus history, into sort of the top quartile of, I believe, of high yielding developed market and emerging market bonds. And so it's a bunch of emerging market countries like Greece and Mexico and Russia. And the US is in that bucket now, but that's not as much a comment on the US. It's a comment on how crazy still the rest of the world is on these super low yielding sovereigns of well below 1% in many, many countries around the world, which is 
probably been the biggest surprise in my career, seeing negative yielding sovereign bonds. As an economist, that probably uh, made made a lot of your um, former colleagues scratch scratch their head a lot. That's kind of a yeah. No one, no one would have predicted that, especially for so long. I mean, it's happened. You know, it's gone on for now, like almost ten years now. It's crazy. You had a fun quote in one of your papers, and I want to use it as a kind of transition point where it stood out. You said, you need some sort of delusion focused on low volatility stocks that causes some investors to reach for the high beta assets outside of the standard model. So wanted to ask, is is this something the general thinking and theory applied to low vol in the equity world? You mentioned very briefly in passing earlier, global so one, is it something that you see that translates well to global, but also does it translate to any other asset classes? So currencies, bonds, we just talked about commodities. Any thoughts there? Yeah. You know, the idea there is, uh, you know, you can get a flat uh, relationship between risk and return, but to, to get the, the high vol stuff to have lower than average returns, there's no rational way you can do that without just and and so you have all these irrational things like people being overconfident and stuff like that in risk loving and, and trying to show off and and um but yeah it, it does translate to a lot of different areas you know you have look at like options options the really out of the money options you know those things have horrible returns if if you look at those uh, penny stocks have horrible returns um, and those have really wild volatility where do you fall on the extension I don't know the answer to this but. I haven't heard you comment on it, but you know one of the big, uh, on a portfolio level, conceptual theories is when thinking about volatility is the concept of when building a portfolio, either normalizing levels of volatility or trying to optimize on correlations and the levering that portfolio, the main one that many would consider to be risk parity as an idea in the portfolio context. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is it a pass? Do you uh, think it's interesting? Not that interesting? Yeah, I'm not, not really a fan of the risk parity stuff. Uh, you know, I, I just think um, within any asset class, uh, you know, like bonds, um, but I would, I would separate bonds into, you know, you have high yield bonds and then you have investment grade bonds. But within those universes, within junk bonds, you want to be in the safest junk bonds because the higher volatility ones have no higher return and they have a lot more risk. Um, same is true within emerging markets and the same is true, you know, within, within maturities on the bonds. I mean, why, why go out 30 years when you can go out five years, get the same return and a lot less volatility. You, know, you can do the same thing on currencies and everything else. Uh, you know, sports books, obviously, if, you know, the hundred to one long shots, they, they have a low return. So compared to like, you know, the two to one guy, of course, if you're betting, it's for fun. So I, I when I, when I bet at the horse racing, I, I bet on the hundred to one too because who wants to make a hundred percent at the at the racetrack, right? It's you want to you want to make ten times, but well, um, well you know, said. You know, but that's that's just play money. But you know, within any grouping, I think it always pays to just go for the most boring stuff when you're talking about real money because it's not sexy and because it shows humility and you know humility is very important and most people don't have it. It's one of our big sins we all we all think we're smart and smarter than average, especially quants you know we all think we're smarter than average because you know most all of us quants were probably better than average and compared to our friends in high school but you know everybody out there's a lot of other smart people too and everyone's looking at the same data believe me i just i just got back from a the world's largest cannabis investing conference in las vegas where there was twenty five thousand people and I think pretty much everyone there 
is looking for an 1,000 to 1 long shot. There's so much money sloshing around, including I took a photo and posted to Twitter of one booth that had a sign that says money grows on trees, which I thought was very pretty good description of the, the current mood and vibe there. Although it was the first conference I've ever been to where I was at the institutional investing session and the table to my left was drinking beers and the table to my right was smoking. So I think it's a little little different vibe than my normal quant uh, quant conferences. Well, you know, Probably- you, you see this all the time in, uh, you know, when, when people advertise, no one ever advertises and says, I'm going to outperform by something reasonable and feasible. I'm going to outperform by 3%, you know, with the same vol, or I'm going to have the same return, but, you know, 20% less vol. Those are very feasible outcomes, but it's really hard to sell. And you see all the time, like the Motley Fool is always, I I had one pop up that said, you know, make 200% on your money over the past, you know, three years or something. And, you know, they they want the the home runs and stuff. The catnip, the Motley Fool has certainly gone down that rabbit hole pretty deeply that they're advertising. They used to be kind of a very investor friendly focused platform. But yeah, they're whoever's in charge in charge of their offerings and advertising department. It's it's getting pretty icky. But it's funny, you know, even on the institutional side, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many, despite not investing in private funds, how many fund offering docs we get that says targeting mid-teen returns, targeting 20, 25% returns. And and I, I laugh because I said, I'm going to have to change all of our marketing material to say we're targeting targeting some obscenely high number. We're never going to get it, but we're targeting it. <laughs> yeah, it is It is kind of strange. You'd think an institution would be smarter than that. Because I left my, my old uh, hedge fund because uh, it, it was just floundering, and so they, they ran out of money. So And I thought, okay, I had, I had a decent sharp there personally. You know, I had like, like 1.3. I was making money every year. You know, the average fund doesn't have a 1.3 sharp. And, you know, no, I thought this would be great. But every headhunter I talked to was like, no, you need a two sharp. And, uh, and I thought, you've got to be kidding. You know, if, if two sharp's the bar to get in and these are individual PMs, then every hedge fund should have like a three sharp. And we know that's not true. So, you know, why, why are you asking for sharps that are not reasonable? But it is what it is. Sharp ratio is the old school sort of, if you're not familiar listeners, it's like the risk adjusted return metric where asset classes over time have about a 0.2 0.3, a good asset allocation portfolio gets you up to about 0.4, 0.5. And so really anything above one is over time world-class and theoretically should 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 put you sort of in the ring of fame. And so two and three, by the way, is, is not <laughs> sustainable. And so we did an old post years ago called Where Have All the Sharp Ratios of One Gone? And we looked at all the this was for commodity trading advisors, but it applies to hedge funds as well. And looked at funds sharp ratios by by age and how long the strategy has been around. And so certainly after a couple of years, you had some that had sharp ratios of two or three. By the way, the S and P can have a sharp ratio of two or three, you know, in short periods. And, and in two thousand seventeen, I think it had a, a daily sharp of two. Yeah, it was high because um, you know the ball's so low and it went up seventeen percent. I think. And- yeah. First, first, first year in history, the stock market didn't have a down month. Right, um, and so, but the but the funny thing about our study was, is you as the years went by, as you went one, three, five, ten years, all the sharp ratios declined below one, and so there was none. I think it was none that had a sharp ratio above one out past like ten years or something, you know, because 
eventually, you know, that's, you know, strategies, it's, it's tough to maintain an edge, but also markets, almost any strategy goes through periods of two, three, five, 10 years where, yeah. you know, unless you're Renaissance that, that they struggle. It's puzzling to me. Cause I mean, this, these are sophisticated people at these big funds and, you know, and, and funds, the hedge funds, I think I haven't seen the data aggregate lately, but you know, they, they do okay, but I don't know, how can they like hire PMs with this kind of delusion? And I just wonder if maybe they're just getting like, they're doing kind of a style momentum. That is if you're a fund and you have like 30 different strategies and you know, whatever, it's like pairs and you have a volatility strategy and, and something else. And something maybe is like momentum based. And so if you just glom on to like whatever's worked over the past two years and generated a two plus sharp, maybe that strategy tends to do okay. I'm thinking that's the only rational explanation I can give for. I, I think there's a much more rational explanation. And that's the old Chinese proverb that fish see the bait, but not the hook. And what these hedge hunters and fund managers, everyone's sort of in on the secret of, they're out there selling the sizzle and this dream that I, I think it's it's with the internet, you know, acting as the global disinfectant, it's it's becoming harder and harder to sell that, you know, sort of dream, which is why hedge funds, so many of them, and, and the hedge fund is just a structure. So it's it applies to a lot of things, but have really struggled in this past, particularly this past cycle, has been a graveyard. For a lot of famous funds, but but the challenge of are there who who said it? I think it's Ray Dalio said it, largest hedge fund manager in the world said, you know, there's not ten thousand good pilots referring to the ten thousand plus hedge funds. You know, it, by definition, it's hard. So anyway, there's a couple other things I want to talk about. So and we only have limited time, but I have three more pages of questions we're not going to get to. But one of the things I'd love to transition to is sort of the career arc. You're now, you're now starting to think a little bit about the cryptocurrency space. Maybe uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about how what attracted you to that world. It sounds like an economist's dream. If there ever been a more fun experiment than crypto, I don't know what it is. But uh, talk talk to us how you uh, kind of got, got interested in that world. Well, yeah, I just started reading about it. And uh, I, I really got into the whole, first, it's just the technology uh, is really, it's not really technology, it's the, the conception, that whole Diffie-Hellman ex- key exchange you know, the proof of work. And, and I was just thought that was just cool. I mean, it's just kind of interesting if you're a geek kind of person, a quant person. And then, you know, I've always been a libertarian. So it jived with that part of me as well. And I also think that, you know, we're, we're going to inflate our way out of our all of our problems eventually. So, you know, it makes sense in the long run to get into these things. So all that stuff kind of came together. And then, as I mentioned, I was I wanted to be, you know, apply my old strategy, but I was too honest and, and said, well, I can give you a low one sharp. And, and uh, there was no interest in that. And so I said, well, I, I don't think I thought I, I'd eventually find somebody who'd be interested in a, a low one sharp, but uh, I never did. And so I said, well, screw it. I'll, I'll just get into this uh, crypto stuff. And, and, uh, and it's been fun. I mean, it's just, you know, obviously, you know, right now it's going through a tough time, but uh, I think the long run it's going to work. And, and, I'm really working now on just trying to find legal ways, you know, to do this because there's so many constraints on on setting it up as a fund because everyone's afraid of what, you know, all the risk, you know, and finding safe ways because, you know, it's really safe, but, you know, you, you forget your password all the time. Well, here, if you forget your password, you don't get your money back. There's nobody to call. Uh, so you have to come up with mechanisms so that it's, it's both safe, but you also, you know, 
you'll also never forget it. And it's just, actually, that's a fun problem. But then coming up with ways to, you know, there's so many horrible things out there. Unfortunately, our regulators thought they're going to save us by not letting us trade them. But, you know, if, if the regulators let us short these, these stupid altcoins last year, it wouldn't have had the stupid bubble that it did. But you couldn't short any of that. So I'm still working on trying to figure out ways to do that because almost, you know, 90, well, there's a famous saying by that uh, novelist that 90% of everything is crap. And uh, th that's definitely true for, for this space. And so there's lots of stuff that's worth zero and it's, um, uh, I'd love to short it. And I'm trying to figure out how just feasibly, because you can short this on various exchanges, but you can't do it as a fund because it's technically illegal for a U.S. person to do it. So you got to figure out a way to do it. What people generally do is they lie and they go through VPNs and pretend they're living in Mexico. But you don't want to do that as a fun because that's not legal. So anyway, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. It's, uh, I, and I think, you know, in 30 years, it's, it's going to be where you want to be because I think the dollar will be worth, you know, not much because um, I, I don't see how else we're going to pay off all of our pension debts and all those I don't know, off the book liabilities without inflating our way out of them. Talk to me a little bit about the future. So you mentioned 30 years from now. Is, is this something, how, how do you think about how they change the landscape of finance? You know, is, is this become a staple of investor portfolios? Are people going to use it mainly as a contender in the, in the currency space? What's, what's your general, what's your general uh, beliefs here? As we look out of the horizon. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not going to replace stocks. It's just going to replace dollars, I think, eventually. Like in 100 years, I think it'll be crypto, uh, not fiat money, because the governments will have, you know, they're, they're going to blow up all their credibility. And you're going to want to go to something that's trustless, that can't be monkeyed with by politicians. So, so in the long run, that's the currency you want to be in. But the companies are going to still have to exist. And, and there'll always be a profit rate uh, for companies because... If there's no profit, there's going to be no companies. So, and the profit rate in the U.S. has been kind of constant over the past hundred years, contrary to what Marx thought when he when he thought that the profit rate would go to zero. That's it. so. That's just an equilibrium, and and so they're going to make whatever the the money is. But I think it's it's it, you know at some point there's going to be a tipping point. It's going to be episodic. There's going to be some some big events, and then Bitcoin or Ethereum or someone's going to take over, and and uh, and that's that's going to be the uh, that'll be the means of payment. Well, just just promise me when you launch your low vol crypto fund that you you instead brand it as the defensive or conservative crypto yeah, fund. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do a tactical. Tactical is good. A quant tactical crypto. Talk to me. Um, we're going to bounce around. We we've kept you long enough. A few more questions that I think would be fun. One, you've published a few books, but I thought one of the more interesting was this concept of your book Maxims. You want to tell us uh, what the history of that was? Oh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, so my, my son was leaving to college, and uh, it's your kid, and you want him like, oh, geez, what are some, some good things I want him to know? And so, you know, I, I would uh, think, oh, I, I should really have him know, you know, moderation in all things. That's a, that's a really good thing to know. And then, and then I wrote down, like, some of my other, like, uh, favorite ones. And, and I, I like quotes, so I, I, I kept, you know, a couple hundred quotes. And so then I thought, well, I'll just put it in a book and give it to him. And so... So it was just fun for him, um, or fun for me. And, and you know, what, what you find is, you know, it, if you want to understand life, it's not like no one thing. You know, there's, there's like lots of things to know. You know, you have to know. It's not like, oh, all you have to understand is um, love or know thyself or, you know, uh, whatever. But 
you know, there's just, there's like a couple hundred things you should know. And uh, quotes are the easiest way to, to, to learn them. And so uh, I put those in a book and, and it was really cool because I, I could do it online and, and it was like five bucks. <laughs> and so I'm like, great. Uh, you know, just, just something, uh, you know, you want I was really worried, you know, if I, if I got killed or something and, you know, I, I wanted my son to like, know. Oh, it's really important to know whatever, you know, to, to be great is to be misunderstood or knowledge can be communicated, but not wisdom or, you know, 90% of everything is crap. Uh, you know, I like, is- I liked your, I liked a couple of them, but the, the, under the purpose tab was seek above all for a game worth playing. I think that's a, a great commentary on a lot of what you and I spend our time thinking about. And, and it's, it's deeper than the, the quote sounds, um, right. you know, that, but, but I loved it. So, um, do you, anyone else buy the book? <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually, I sold a couple, I, I no, I, I sold actually about 250 of them. So not bad. Oh, wow, that's great. That's uh, awesome. I just priced it at kind of like, you know, par, so it's not a big deal. I'm just, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to do for your, for your family. Actually, it's, it's really cheap to do. Um, so for someone who's got a curious mind, thought about all sorts of different stuff in his career, anything else that's you sit back in your chair that's got your brain uh, worrying, anything that uh, you're thinking about these days, whether it's markets or anything else. I imagine a lot of it's crypto related, but what else is on your brain these days? You know, just about that. You know, I, I, I became a Christian a couple of years ago, so I actually, I spent a lot of time uh, in Bible studies now and do, do a lot of that stuff, but that's kind of off topic. Uh, I find that very rewarding, but I mean, I still like, I like to just read lots of stuff about science and finance and, and and keep up on that stuff but um there's a lot of interest there, there's always more books i want to read than i can and so there's always any 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 favorites lately i i need some good inspiration i'm i'm, I'm in a lull i've i uh I, f- I find myself more and more uh, last half dozen books i've been through really struggling with them any any favorites of the past year or two by the way this this question is impossible for me to answer yeah, so. <laughs> gee, yeah. <laughs> at the top any- head of uh Let's see. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of the Bible study type books, which yeah. is interesting. But I, yeah, no, I don't. I don't remember the well, the ones I really liked. Uh, oh, but, all right. Uh, well, if you if you if you if you come if you think of any that were well, astonishing, you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. I really liked his uh, Twelve Rules. So I, I get that to my son too. That's a good one for him. I thought perfect. I haven't read it. So as as you look back over your career, and I think we we already uh, did the punchline in the in the beginning of the talk, but you may have to think of number two. Um, but we, we love to ask the guests, what's been your most memorable trade or investment over the course of your career? And if, and if the puts is number one, you have to answer what's, is, is there another one that comes to mind? Anything in particular that really stands out? Well, you know, after that, I remember I was, I was a little overconfident. So I, I thought, Oh, I'll, I'll trade these things. So I remember back then I had to call on the phone and then I wanted to buy a, a put on or a call on a specific stock because I, you know, the, the Fed actually lowered lowered interest rates right away. And so via the Minsky model where the Fed really kind of controls these things, I was confident that the market was going to recover, which it did. But I, so I picked out a specific company because I figured, you know, so I, I remember it was bought like it was some retail company like May Company or May Stores and I bought an out of the money call. And it was trading at like a dollar and a quarter. And and they said, oh, you know, and then they called me back five minutes later and said, you got filled at, at, a, at a buck and three quarters. And I'm like, oh, I got it just as it's going up. Great. But then I realized 
it, the price didn't change. So basically, the the bid ask spread was like you know you, you buy it for a buck and three quarters and you sell it for a buck and a quarter. The what, what's the transaction cost on that? That's like uh, I don't know a quarter divided by what the the true value is one and a half. So anyway, the the spreads on those those options back in the late '80s were so high. You know, just two or three trades, and I was down like forty percent, and and the market didn't move, and I'm like, what's going on? You know, that's actually a pretty, I think, useful example. A lot of people spend almost all their time thinking about, you know, the right investment, and so little time thinking about the plumbing. I was getting into a fees and transaction costs and all the boring stuff, taxes. I got into a bit of a uh, Twitter fight this morning because I was giving a really hard time to this very hot startup that has like 4 million users that it's a savings and investment app. And, you know, they, they make it sound like it's a great deal because they only charge one to $3 a month. But in reality, um, the average account size is only 250 bucks. So these people, these people are paying five to 15% per year and they're registered as an investment advisor. So technically fiduciary, and I said, look, you know, it's great that all these millennials hate going into branch banks anymore. But, you know, in the meantime, you're paying 10, 15 percent a year on a savings account. So, uh, you know, and, and man, you should have seen the reactions, many of which were, what are you talking about? I don't pay any fees. Yeah. <laughs> so right. so yeah. it's the, the, the important stuff is often not necessarily the investment side, but, um, yeah. but everything else. Yeah. Fr- free is free is always ex- the most expensive way to do something. And when somebody says like, oh, I don't measure my trading costs because I've got more bigger fish to fry. It's like, no, you don't. Eric, where can people find uh, if they want to follow your updates, writing, everything else? Is the blog uh, the best place? Know, like, where should they go? Right, right now, I, I'm basically most active on Twitter. Um, I, I don't update my blog much anymore. You know, you can do E.G. Falcon, uh, Eric George Falcon, E.G. Falcon at Twitter, I type in my name. and um, But, uh, you know, and. I'm pretty much uh, off the grid now, especially, you know, doing my crypto stuff. I can't really talk about that too much because I am trying to create a fund. And so um, and, and so that's, yeah, you, you know, there are all those restrictions on that. So. I hear you. Well, look, we'll post show notes, links to your books and papers and the best places to get in touch with you. And, and people can uh, pick fights with you on Twitter as well. We'll post links. Eric, it's been a blast. Uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, join us today. All right, great, Matt. Nice talking to you. Listeners, thanks for sitting in. We'll post the show notes I mentioned on the blog at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can always subscribe on the various apps, Overcast, Breaker, Stitcher, and leave us a review. Got over 400 five-star reviews. I promise we read every one of them uh, and love it and really do appreciate it. Um, Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.